hppodcraft.com. This is Chad Pfeiffer. And this is Chris Lackey. And we are at the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. Today we're not alone, however. No. We are joined today by archaeologist and all-around cool guy, James Holloway. Hello. Now, I heard of James uh, from a lecture that you did at Treadwells in London, was it last year? Yeah, that's right. One last year and one this year. Oh, we did another one. Well, I did the same one twice. Oh, you did the same one twice. <laughs> it's What's Treadwells? Is that a bookstore? Yeah, Treadwells is an alt bookshop in uh, Covent Garden, London, and it's this amazing tiny little place, but that's that's full of esoteric richness. Um, and then they they host lectures and, and workshops and classes, uh, pretty much you know three or four times a week. Huh? So it's an occult bookstore. Oh yeah, absolutely. So that it's it, in the movie where I contracted some sort of supernatural malady if I became a werewolf or you know I was becoming magically thinner or something. That's the place I would go. Yeah, no, to get, all, to get all the exposition out of the way so that the, you know, that's where I'd get my books with the, the wood carvings that depict werewolves in the woods carrying babies and demons around fire and that kind of, that's that's where I would go to Treadwells. Exactly, and and rows of little packets of herbs and crystals and, and so forth that, that would be used. I mean, it is exactly like, um, it, it's just like it should be. Perfect. Not only does it take but it doesn't take itself too seriously, so really it's good. good. It, I mean, I, it can't take itself too seriously because your, your lecture is, you know, kind of a, a scientific or a literary lecture. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I was I was a little bit nervous, I think, going in that I was going to get in the, in the audience who was going to ask, isn't it all real? Uh, I also heard another lecture from Treadwells where it was about the Necronomicon. That was uh, Dan Harms? Uh, um, yes, yes, yes. And, that, and he, yeah, it was Dan Harms. Yeah, um, that was, that was uh, late in 2008, maybe, something like that? Yeah, that sounds about right. In the very beginning of it, he goes, yeah, it's not real. <laughs> it's not a real book. And, uh, and I'm going to explain to you, you know, why it got so popular and, and why people think that it is, which sort of ties in a little bit to your lecture. No, oh, absolutely. It, it was the success of, of Dan Arms' talk that prompted them to do my No. Great. Well, that's a nice transition into what we're doing today. We're covering two, I don't know if I'd call them stories, but uh, two pieces of writing by H.P. Lovecraft, who, by the way, is the author that we cover on this show. One of them is called Ibid, and the other is called The History of the Necronomicon. Now, normally we have a reader come on and, and go through these things because there's lots of drama and, and excellent writing and that sort of thing. But these two are kind of, well, I don't know how I would describe them, but I, we're just going to have James talk about it and we're going to discuss it. There's no real storyline in either of these. Well, there is a history of the Necronomicon, which some people mm. may or may not know. And it's kind of common knowledge now for, for folks that are uh, into Lovecraft. But um, the original title of the Necronomicon, of the Necronomicon was Al as If. Right, that's in the first sentence of this uh, this little history that Lovecraft wrote. It's about a page long. And supposedly yeah. it was written by Abdul al Hazared. Yeah, of course. The Necronomicon, when Lovecraft introduced it, is just sort of this somewhat nebulous black magic book, right? And that's in The Hound, which is, is written in 22 and published in 24. Um, and as Dan Harms points out, throughout its kind of publication history, the Necronomicon seems to change its character, right? I mean, it's sort of a spell book at one point, and at another time it's a collection of mythology. Um, mm-hmm. But Lovecraft was, even when he was just making stuff up on the fly, he was very punctilious about details. And sort of, I think sort of partly in order to keep himself straight and partly because people asked him about it, he wrote this thing, The History of the Necronomicon. Yeah. Um, and, he, and he came up with this history. So it's, it's written um, circa 700 AD by Abdul al-Hazred. He dies in 738. He is said to have been seized by an invisible monster in broad daylight and devoured horribly before a large number of witnesses. Uh, he ties it into um, Irem, of course, which is this legendary uh, lost city 
in Arabia. He says he, he worshipped um, uh, Yog Sothoth and Cthulhu and, and says um, dryly he was only an indifferent Muslim. Uh, <laughs> and then it's uh, it's translated into Greek in 950. Um, it's suppressed and burnt by the church authorities. Uh, it's translated into Latin um, in 1228 by Oleos Formius. Um, and then there's an unprinted English translation made by John Dee and a couple of different Latin texts. And then the rest of it is just sort of about um, where copies of these texts now exist. So obviously there's one in uh, at Harvard, um, there's one in the Library of Miskatonic University, and then one in the University of Buenos Aires, which is kind of a... It's sort of uh, strange. Yeah, it's an odd choice. I yeah. don't know why. And then there's a few <laughs> other sort of offhand references. Um, and then it was from rumors of this book, of which relatively few of the general public know, uh, that R.W. Chambers is said to have derived the idea of his early novel, The King in Yellow, um, which is, of course, about this play that you know has all sorts of weird occult right. things and drives people mad and so on. I mean, which is a bit of cheek, since obviously The King in Yellow it appears to be an inspiration for the Economica. Right, exactly. It's the other way around. I mean, the the King in Yellow was written in the 1890s. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's an interesting uh, when Lovecraft discovers the King. He writes. He writes. I forget who he writes to, but he writes his letter saying, "You know, did you know that Robert Chambers wrote these crazy weird stories? Because Chambers was known as this this writer of uh, of romance novels. Yeah, he wrote like dime store shop girl novels. Yeah, yeah, tons of them. Lovecraft is just shocked. That the King in Yellow. Even I mean, it's an interesting text history in the Necronomicon. It's got. I mean, it's got some errors in it. Um. Olay's Vermius did not live in the 13th century, for instance. Oh, no? Nah, he was uh, 1588 to 1655. Oh. It's believed that, that Lovecraft misread some reference in, in, in something else. But he was an antiquarian and natural philosopher. He collected strange animals and fossils and so on. And, uh, there was a book, uh, the Museum Vermianum, um, depicting his uh, uh, cabinet of curiosities. It was actually published after he died in uh, 1655. And he translated this alleged thing, the Runamo inscription, which is actually a natural rock formation and stuff. And he was, you know, your basic 17th century antiquarian scientist guy. And Lovecraft mentions him a couple times in, in some of his earlier works. He's already brought up Oleus. Yeah. No, I mean, he was, he was you know, well known. Now, who is, uh, who is Dr. D? Dr. John D um, is an Elizabethan sort of uh, mystic. He's quite a character in his own right. The, the John Dee connection to the Necronomicon actually originates with Frank Belknap Long. He introduced the idea that John Dee translated the Necronomicon. Yeah, he, he wrote up a quotation from it that was going to go in, I think, the Space Eaters. And then the quotation, I think, in the end didn't make it into the story, but Lovecraft kept the idea. Oh. Uh, he was an alchemist, hermeticist, mathematician, astrologer, one of the very sort of uh, typical 16th century uh, well, well, atypical, really, in this case. But you know what I mean? That, that <laughs> boundary between science and magic. He was an expert in navigation, of course, during the time. Exploration in the, the Americas was, was very important. And uh, he allegedly is the first person to have used the phrase British Empire. Like he was connected to Queen Elizabeth I, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, absolutely. He was the, uh, didn't he use the, uh, the astronomer royal or something like that. He was a Cambridge, in fact. He got charged with casting horoscopes at one point. He wrote a cult text. Um, he devoted himself to studying predicting the future or, or divination with the aid of angels. He, uh, he's a guy, you know, if you're familiar with the Enochian alphabet, that was him. You're, you're a very colorful Renaissance scientist slash occultist. Huh. It also says that uh, one Greek text of the Necronomicon was held by the Pikmin family. 
which is obviously a reference to uh, Pikmin from Lovecraft's other story, Pikmin's Model. And it also says uh, it forms part of the collection of a celebrated American millionaire. Now, I'm assuming that's the great Gatsby. But uh, <laughs> is it, is it, who else could that possibly be? I don't. I don't know. I actually, I was thinking about that today. I was saying, is this a, is this a reference to a particular person? And uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, nothing sort of left out at me. It's, the text is what history of the economic was written in. I think nineteen twenty-seven. Yeah. Uh, who that could be? Uh, what about Hearst? Was Hearst? Uh, oh, that was that was who occurred to me. Was, was yeah. That's was, what I popped into my head. Was Hearst? Hearst. We have a copy of the Economicon. If so, God help us all. Um, but well, uh, how else do you think it was so successful? You know, you're really a publishing tycoon when you actually own the Necronomicon in addition to all these newspapers. The, the Necronomicon does not seem to make anybody else successful. No, <laughs> no. Tend to come to a bad end. Maybe Sam Raimi. <laughs> Just like all this, um, Romeus, uh and uh, of course John D. I mean, a lot of the sort of this is a very common look. The next, the other guy that he cites, um, Ibn Khalikan, if that's how you pronounce it, was another real person. He was from Iraq. He was a 13th century biographer, and a, he was a judge in Syria in the, the mid to late 12th century. He, he wrote this enormous biographical dictionary called The Deaths of Eminent Men and History of the Sons of the Epoch. Whoa. Yeah, the English translation is 2,700 pages long. Whoa. Yeah, so again, it's before massive volumes. So it's the kind of thing that Lovecraft could count on the more learned of his readers, and I don't know how many of those there were in the Called world, maybe having heard of, but no one ever right. Had read. <laughs> right, it's like Ulysses. It's on everybody's list, but nobody's read it. Exactly. Every, everybody, one of these days, is gonna slog through all four volumes of a 13th century Syrian biographical dictionary. <laughs> it's rich. It's on their list. So that's sort sort of why. I mean, and and I'm t I'm stealing directly from your lecture. That's sort of why this is kind of endured because Lovecraft would cite these real things that people knew of but didn't didn't necessarily know a lot about yeah and it would sort of give him weight to the to whatever oh, it is yeah, that he wrote and he's and he's, he's he's a master of it i mean um the the thing that i quote in my lecture is uh from the nameless city which is the first the first mention of abdul al-hazred in his fiction although not of the it's, he doesn't the necronomicon's not in it right. just abdul no. al-hazred mm -hmm. um and uh he says uh, sentences from al-hazred the mad arab paragraphs from the apocryphal nightmares of Damascus, and infamous lines from the delirious image du monde of Gautier de Metz. Now, Damascus, real author. Yeah. Uh, Gautier de Metz, real author. Image du monde, real book. And so he just throws in this reference to Abdul al-Hazred in there. And, I mean, Lovecraft perfected this pose of impenetrable erudition. And you can see it in his letters as much as his fiction. Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> except, we're going to be getting into that in just a second. <laughs> uh, I was a little wearing reading him patronizing for long at length or whatever. But yeah, he, he was he was a master of the of knowing how to phrase things in a way that sounded like this is merely the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Like he was this like clearly, well, we've all read the image du monde. It, I mean, I don't know if he had or not, but a lot of right. these books, he'd never even seen a cop. He had the um, tone and the jargon of the antiquarian down so perfectly that, that you just, I mean, he, clearly he knows a lot about weird old books that you don't right. know about. And, yeah. and this could just be one more. And as a result of that, the Necronomicon has become almost Lovecraft, his Bigfoot or something like that, because, you know, his other creations didn't necessarily, they're, they're definitely, the public is aware of them tangentially like Cthulhu, but the Necronomicon, I mean, some people have heard about it without ever knowing anything about H.P. Lovecraft. It worked its way into people actually thinking it's a real book, you know, or it's become part of this sort of 
dark magic, the collection of things that you might want to get if you're into that stuff, the witchcraft or yeah, anything. Exactly. And 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 more than any it's because it's not it's not necessarily specific to, to the mythos. You know, it it, um, it lends itself well as a prop to any broadly occult setting. So um, it, it turns up in all kinds of things. You know, mm-hmm. it, obviously, I mean, you mentioned Sam Raimi earlier, um, mm-hmm. where, we, I mean, it's the, the book in Evil Dead is called the Necronomicon, not particularly because anyone cared about the Cthulhu mythos. I mean, it's, it's got nothing to do with Lovecraft, but it just sounds like a, a great evil tome. Yeah. It's got a, wonderful, yeah. got a wonderful name, the Necronomicon. This has the same effect that Lovecraft and the Lovecraft Circle created, which is that you keep constantly seeing references to the Necronomicon from a large number of, of unconnected creators. Yeah. And so therefore, you assume that they're all referring to a real thing that does exist. Mm-hmm. Silly as it may sound, um, I think Dungeons & Dragons had a huge effect on it. The, uh, the Deities and Demigods book, in which the Cthulhu Mythos is right alongside actual pantheons from actual mythology. Right. Yeah, it's in there with it, the Norse gods, it's in there with the Egyptian gods. gods. It's, yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's just like, oh, you know, Greek gods. They're treated as if they were the same type of thing. And Lovecraft kept up that, I mean, he, that, that, that was his tactic, was that he would yeah. talk about it initially as if it was mythology. There's a, well, there's a quote of his where he says that to make good science fiction, you have to write it as if you're writing a hoax. Yeah, that's right. He wrote that to uh, Clark Cash and Smith uh, right. in... Uh, on October 17, 1930, I've said no weird story can truly produce terror unless it is devised with all the care and verisimilitude of natural hopes. There you go. That's it. Yeah, yeah. And of course, uh, we've recounted on uh, an earlier show how Chris and I went to find the Necronomicon at the Special Collections Library at University of Illinois, uh, only to discover the you know old 70s edition of Elsprog du Camps. Hey, Necronomicon. Right, right. First of all, that, that fake Arabic-looking calligraphy. Exactly. Yes. Right. Yeah. It was in the special books collection. You know, we had to go into a room and somebody brought it to us because it was a it's a rare book. Yeah, despite yeah. the fact that it's as you say from the seventies. Yeah, I came out with that sort of uh, orange cover and it felt like a textbook from when I was a little kid. It was kind of disappointing. I it expected was really it to be found in, in human skin and start talking to me. <laughs> well that's um that's uh oh, who someone sent that, right? If the Necronomicon existed. It would be out in paperback with a preface by Lynn Carter. And of course, I mean, it is. Because <laughs> these things are never as, as blasphemous and, and horrifying as they should be, right? I mean, no. it's actually something. I mean, Lovecraft knew that. I mean, he actually says when you read alleged books of black magic, they're kind of boring. Of course. Yeah. It's, it's much better to have something that you can make up and you can put whatever in it you want and just leave. And he leaves the rest of the imagination. Neil talks about the horrors of these books and, you know, reading them makes people strange and, you know, drives them mad. But it doesn't go into a huge amount of detail about what's in them because then it would just be kind of prosaic. And that's what happens in The King in Yellow as well. There's a this play that's quoted from. You see a little excerpt of some of the scenes in it, but you have no idea what really goes on in the play itself other than that it drives it drives aesthetes and artists completely mad. And there was, there was I mean, there have been several attempts to produce texts of the King of Yellow, and there was uh, mm-hmm. Tom Ring did one, and it and it is very eerie and atmospheric, but it's not. I mean, you put a lot of weight on that text when you say there's this thing that you know ruins people alive. Yeah, but it's still not going to drive anybody insane. No, I mean, and it's <laughs> it's one of those show the monster things. It's never as frightening as what your imagination produces. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean that's why Lovecraft kicks ass is because he's able to to not tell you too much and just hint at these things, and your imagination is able to fill in all of this stuff. Yeah, and but he was very good at the passing reference. He had these these ways of saying the Necronomicon, as if to say, "Oh, you know the Necronomicon." I think that's why his sort of fictitious mythology has has endured when others haven't. Hate to do this, but we should transition over to the other story, uh, which is Ibid. It's very short as well, and it's basically a history of the writer, Ibid. When you're writing a, a paper and you're citing sources, Ibid is what, that's the notation you put down to say that I'm citing the same source I just cited again, correct? I mean, exactly, that's what it Ibidem, means. the same. Yeah, it's just a joke, basically. Um, yeah. Right. Uh, and it's one that's been done many times because, I mean, the joke is that it says it's from a student theme. It says the students, as Ibid, as Ibid says in his life, of the poet. So there's some hypothetical student who, having just flicked through a book, not really understanding it, sees this reference to Ibid and thinks, aha, this guy is citing something that Ibid wrote. Right. And there's a, there's a novel, um, Ibid, A Life, by Mark Dunn, um, which is apparently made up entirely of end notes. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and there's someone else, um, Ralph Wiley, maybe, tells a story about how, you know, as a kid, he he walked into the library and said, you know, just give me everything you got by Ibid. So, I mean, the idea is that basically he's just he's just riffing on this idea that there's this guy, Ibid, who is this, this author of of significance. And then he just starts going, I mean, he begins with these other jokes, like then CF um, is responsible for this work. And Ibid's mm-hmm. masterpiece was the famous opposite. Right. And then he starts to go on. And I mean, the rest of it, and then it starts to be full of like these little puns. Von Schweinkopf, and since his time, Little Wit and Fetch Noir have shown that this strikingly nice, blah, blah, blah. So Von Schweinkopf, obviously, is, it means uh, pig head. Uh, Bet Noir means black beast. And they give Ibid's, uh, Ibid's real name, and it's insanely long. Right. But well, there's uh, three different versions as well. Right. So <laughs> at the very end, it's um, Caius, Anicius, Magnus, Furius, Camillus, Emilianus, Cornelius, Valerius, Pompeius, Julius, Ibidus. <laughs> and he's, you can almost see throughout the whole thing that he's sort of making fun of himself. Like at, at one point, someone finds Ibid's skull, which has an inscription on it. Right. Um, and it says, he having recognized its value from the half-effaced inscription carved in Lombardic minuscules, parentheses, paleography, it might be explained, was one of the leading accomplishments of New Netherland fur traders of the 17th century. <laughs> and this is sort of one of those things, like, if you read at the Mountains of Madness, where all the sort of geologists all have intensely detailed knowledge of, you know, forbidden occult texts. Mm-hmm. Whoever, you know, people always just happen to have the knowledge they need Yes, for that point. <laughs> exactly. In so this is just his sort of, his strange fantasy on on Ibid, and it just gets stranger and stranger. Um, right. I mean, there is a, t- a story, really. It's the story of a relic, right? So it's Ibid's skull gets passed on from person to person. Yeah, and some folks realize that it is important and it's significant, and others don't know at all, and they, they drink beer out of it and keep their candy in it. And Yeah, and then, <laughs> but then in the end, it winds up falling into a prairie dog warren and being worshipped with dark rites by the prairie dog. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have to admit that I have not looked up too much uh, of, of the historical references in Ibid. You've done far more than I have. I have to tell you, when I first read this, it made no sense to me at all. I had to start almost every other word, start looking up and trying to figure out what it meant and go, oh, okay, oh, oh all right, oh, okay. And then any joy that I would have got out of reading this, I, I didn't have at the time when mm. I first read it. 
Now, after talking with you, I'm getting much more out of this story, re realizing all these references. Well, this actually came from a letter that he wrote to Maurice Moe. Right. And and it was just kind of, you know, him riffing on stuff that he knew Maurice would get all these jokes. And yeah, and I exactly. even think he mentions or he names one of the characters Maurice in this in this story. Uh, yes, he does. Yes. Um, the Emperor Maurice. It, uh, it was a real person. Oh, there was an Emperor Maurice. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure that most of these uh, various Ostrogoths and whatnot, all these various emperors are all are all real. And then I think once and, you know, once we get into read him and weep Hopkins, I'm, I'm willing to accept that he's probably not a real person. Yeah, well, I love that that's, you know, when the Americans show up, they have names like Readem and Weep Hopkins and Rest in Jehovah's <laughs> Stubbs. Yeah, he did. Um, he kind of went back to that well a few times, kind of poking fun at the Puritan, all these people with, with, with these strange biblical names. I mean, right. mm -hmm. uh, uh, Rest in Jehovah Stubbs' son is called uh, Zerubbabel. Right. And then he loses it in a gambling to Epinetus Dexter, a visiting freeman of Providence. Yeah, this is a, these are two interesting things to look at because the Necronomicon history is clearly just sort of setting down. Finally, I've mentioned this thing a lot, but here's actually for myself and anybody else who wants to use it. Here are the notes. And then this is it shows, you know, he was such a, um, a literary man and such a, a studier, you know, that, that when he wanted to have fun and cut loose, this is sort of how he did it. I'm going to write a history of, of Ibit. Yeah, absolutely. And um, his his sense of humor is sort of one of the, the most surprising things about him because of course apart from a few comical rustics particularly in the early stories his fiction mm -hmm. is just so relentlessly bleak and oppressive and then and our image of him as a writer is of this sort of perpetually depressed tormented person and then yeah. you know but actually a lot of his uh, a lot of the stuff that comes out of his letters shows someone with a you know with a very rich sense of humor uh this was first published in um uwash hanong I came on that reference. I, I got to assume a lot of Lovecraft stuff is, is from these. I don't even know what you would call them. I mean, I guess they would say they were fanzines. Like fanzines. Yeah, these kind of seem like fanzines. But it was republished again in Fantagraph in June in 1940. And then uh, in a Uncollected Prose and Poetry 2 in 1980. And then, of course, Joshi finally put it in uh, Lovecraft compilation in 95 called Miscellaneous Writings. I liked this type of story just because it does show a different side of Lovecraft, and it's it's good. Even like you said, he didn't do this this type of thing very often, but when he when he does, it's nice to point it out and show the other side of him. I mean, in his letters, you get you get a better sense of his of, of his humor, but in his writing or his prose, you just don't get that at all. It's nice to point out that that he he does have a pretty good sense of humor. It's funny because like I often. You know, you see a lot of the sort of modern culture and sort of merchandise associated with the Cthulhu mythos is this sort of slightly irreverent humorous, you know, the Cully Cthulhu and the Shaga uh, right. Cthulhu. And, and exactly. exactly. And, all that, and all that kind of thing. Cthulhu has become, someone said to me on the, um, on the night that I gave my talk, Cthulhu is about as scary as Dracula. You know, he's not scary at all. He's, he's a friendly, reassuring figure in the modern day. But it's but it's interesting to see that in his letters, Lovecraft. I mean, he talks about it in exactly those terms, right? He talks about these sort of mythos monstrosities that live in his house and and get up to humorous hijinks, and things yeah. like that. He says, you know, oh, Nug and Yeb are acting up again. It's funny to see that that behind the scenes, I mean, that is kind of his attitude. All you can't take this stuff too seriously. I mean, it is horror literature, and it is scary if you think about it. But there's, I mean, there's sort of. There's a point where things can't be scary anymore, where, where you just kind of look, okay, if the universe is meaningless and, and it doesn't care about you and when you die you're just going to rot in the ground, 
that's kind of a sad thought, especially when most people have religious beliefs and they think that they're going to go on and that there's some caring God or gods out there that are going to, you know, take care of you. But there's a point where you kind of just get over that, that idea that that's sad and you just kind of go, well, whatever, you know, and kind of throw up your hands and make light of it. Well, that's kind of something that I said in the um, talk at Treadwells, right? We're, we're talking about how Lovecraftian horror is the kind of thing that theoretically postmodernism should make you immune to. Right, this generation. Well, the, you know, the world is a, the universe is infinite, and, and nothing you do has any importance in cosmic terms. Well, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I, I was aware of that. I think <laughs> we all were. And so that's that's kind of why Lovecraft uses um, history and archaeology as such important motifs in his fiction, because for him, um, they're very intimately connected with the idea of identity. Uh, you are your past, um, and therefore he. he he has to take this this cosmic nihilism, nothing matters, everything is terrible, blah, 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 and translate it into something that has relevance to the individual. So that so that there's more horror than just kind of this general philosophical, you know, oh, the universe is not like we thought it was. Um, mm-hmm. There's always this thing of, of the past somehow being poisoned, um, which means if your past is not what you thought it was, then you are not who you thought you exactly, were. Yeah. And this, this cosmic scale thing gets focused in to a much more individual uh, level and that that's where he applies the same knowledge of history and ability to write in that antiquarian voice that he uses in, in things like history of the Necronomicon and, and Ibid where he's using it there to either just sort of factual or comedic effect mm-hmm. that he, he then uses it to create a, a horrific effect. It is true obviously lots of, of Lovecraft's writing uh looks at the past and the past is not what you thought it was, which means you're not who you think you are. Mm. You know, be it if you have a relative that became a cannibal or your <laughs> great, great, great grandfather, uh, the gorilla. Right. Yeah. You know? <laughs> which admittedly is not an analogy that, that holds up terribly well, I think for the modern reader. No, <laughs> yeah, you know, these two pieces of work, the history of the Necronomicon and Ibid, uh, on their own are maybe not that compelling of pieces as pieces of fiction, but uh, they're very they're worth looking at for people who are interested in Lovecraft's unique talent and why he resonates so well with modern audiences still and with so many other writers. And it's because of this ability to incorporate history and uh, and fiction together. It's all a question of um, his sort of mastery of that discourse. Well, I mean, which is interesting when you consider sort of his educational background, right? I mean, Lovecraft. Didn't go to university. He didn't even finish high school. No, but he was sort of self-educated, a voracious reader, and he seems to have. I mean, if you look at the stuff he wrote as a little kid, he has this sort of gift for um, mimicry. I guess he writes very effectively in the voices of certain types of people, um, and and sort of antiquarians and scholars and historians are definitely um, among them, um, which really I think contributes to the whole sort of is it real aspect of the mythos i mean i don't think anyone has ever gone around wondering whether conan the barbarian existed right <laughs> and uh, yeah right maybe maybe schwarzenegger <laughs> i need some photos of this guy how am i going to play him i don't even know what he talks like even though um, howard is writing something that's more or less recognizable in the real world at a very high level approximation it hasn't had that lasting no impact oh yeah conan conan as a character is fun 
to read about and yeah. he's exciting yeah. and engaging but I, at no point would I ever think that Conan's world was a real place it seems completely fictional and fantastic and Lovecraft is much more subdued with his settings even his town you know when I first started getting into Lovecraft I, I just assumed Arkham was a real place yeah. It wasn't until I was, you know, older um, and started doing research that I realized, oh, it's it's a fictionalized town. And he uses a lot of sort of real world analogies, partly uh, in in the towns and things. Um, also, like if you look at at the Mountains of Madness, um, for instance, it, the the details of the of the Antarctic expedition are, are all based on contemporary Antarctic exploration. The same is true in the archaeology. Like um, he's always talking about about what at those time at that time was sort of relatively recent discovery. So he talks about Machu Picchu, for instance. Mm-hmm. Machu Picchu was 1913, I think. Hiram Bingham um, right. discovered. I mean, I say discovered. He was the first American to know where it was. And isn't that really what's important? Right, <laughs> right, right, right. The locals knew where it was. Yeah, they know it was there for a long time. But yeah, the American found out. So now it's discovered. Yeah. Or he says something. Uh, I think he was American. Says, um, or he says the primal foundation walls of Kish. Um, as dug up by the Oxford Fields Museum expedition in 1929, so he's you know I mean in that case he's going with something that that would be, you know that was breaking news that was that was that was a a, a relatively modern sort of scientific topic. Right. That's yeah. something that that I think that's an Mountain Madness, which is from. Uh, when am I going to meet this Conan? Where does he live? <laughs> you haven't even set up the interview yet. How am I going to do this movie? That's actually theory. <laughs> I don't know. Why am I still on that? Well, um, <laughs> James, the, this has been really informative. You're a great guest to have on. You, you have so much knowledge about this, and it's a, it's a great take on these stories. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, it's absolutely, man. It's been really great having um, you. Now, the lecture that James gave at Treadwells was called The Layers of Cthulhu. We'll put a link up to it uh, on our page, so after you get done with this, you can click over there and, and have a listen to that. It's about an hour long. And uh, lots of good information there as well. Next week, we will be covering The Curse of Yig. The heck is that about? Uh, Yig. Well, Yig, I believe, is some kind of serpent god. I believe there's a curse as well. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. I like serpents and I love curses. That's probably going to be a really good one. All right. Again, thank you, James. Uh, And with that, I am Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. Oh, and I'm James Holloway. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com.